Welcome to Business Done Differently, the podcast about challenging the status quo, creating fans first, and changing the game in business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. Our guest today is Charlene Lee. Charlene is an absolute rock star in the innovation and disruption space. She's been named one of the most creative people in business, as well as one of the top 50 leadership innovators in the world. She's the author of six best-selling books, including her most recent book, The Disruption Mindset, which is an absolute game changer. The book became an instant Bible for me on how to disrupt the sports industry, and I believe every business leader should have this on their bookshelf. I am absolutely fired up to look into the future of business and welcome the one and only Charlene Lee. Welcome, Charlene. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am excited to jam with you. I know we've talked a little bit before, but this whole idea of disruption, and especially right now more than ever, I want to know where it first became something that you were looking into. Why disruption for you? It started when I was a kid. I grew up in Detroit. Go figure that. I'm Asian American, (laughs) and Detroit is not where you would normally find them. And so we're the only family of color, period, in our entire community. And so I was a walking force of disruption, just literally being in the room. And so I was always curious about how do I speak up? How do I stand out? Because I just stood out everywhere I went. And so I kind of got used to this. And so saw myself as a disruptor. I'm like, if I'm going to be different, I may as well be really different. And so really developed this ability to have a lot of empathy, be able to navigate my way through rough waters in many ways. And that gave me a sense of courage to always think about disrupting things, looking at things from a different perspective. And so you took that perspective. Obviously, you did a few things before you got into being author and speaker. But where did it really, from a business sense, really stand out? Like, all right, you got to disrupt if you want to stay relevant. Yeah, it came right after I graduated from Harvard Business School. Everybody else was going to investment, banking, and consulting. And this is 1993. And I decided to like <laughs> look into this new thing called the internet. And when I graduated, there wasn't even a World Wide Web. So that was when like Prodigy came out and they were like other like Netscape and yeah. I had AOL, AOL. you know, CompuServe and Prodigy. I had accounts on every single one of those services. I'm so enamored by it. And so I did research to say, how could I play in this area? I could go into hardware, software, to the communications and pipes and cable companies or into content. And the first three I knew nothing about, I go, I consume content. I can work in that space. And then interviewed all over that and settled on newspapers because I love the mission of newspapers. And also given what they do, I figured they would be the first ones to be impacted by this. So I staked my career coming out of Harvard Business School on the disruption of the internet on the newspaper industry and landed up at the San Jose Mercury News uh, and working on helping newspapers figure out what to do with this new thing called the internet. So you were one of the first to really look at, hey, this digital disruption, this digital reinvention. And so that's where you started guiding them? Right. And so I worked on, for example, selling internet advertising, which was, again, just brand new. We were the second newspaper online by the fall of 1994. Wow. And I was one of the people working with the advertising team saying, well, this is how you normally sell print. This is how you sell online. And this is how you talk about it. And this is how you educate people and go out there and and talk to people about who is this audience? How do you buy an ad? What's a CPM? We were defining the sizes of banner ads back then. I mean, it was the Wild West. <laughs> and so I remember when we first were trying to change the model of what we're doing, we we're telling people, well, we're not a baseball team. They're like, well, you play baseball, right? I'm like, no, but we're really not a baseball team. Our players do choreographed dances. It's a circus. It took a lot of convincing for them to get to know that. And I think probably then you learned probably the first concept of future customers. Because yeah. I'll tell you, Charlie, when I started reading about that, I was like, 
oh, thank goodness someone is saying this because it's not the traditional baseball fan, the 60-year-old baseball fan anymore. You have to look into the future. Tell me about how that concept maybe first started coming to you and where it is now. Sure. And so I started the Sanders and American News and then got married, movies, went to Boston, got another newspaper job. And I was employee number one for their online newspaper division. Well, which so newspaper I, was this? It's called Community Newspaper Company. Okay. And that was all the small weeklies and small dailies, about 120 uh, publications serving 200 communities in Boston, around Boston, all over the place. So kind of like the equivalent of the Savannah uh, market. And it was like, who cares about that market? I'm like, this is people's lives. And when you really truly understood what their needs were, they wanted to know what was happening down the street. They wanted to know what was happening in city councils, whether the local team won. Why isn't the garbage being picked up? I mean, yeah. this is like news that impacted people's lives every day. And when we realized it wasn't just about the news and it wasn't just about the newspaper, it was about the community. That gave us a hook to say, we have the opportunity to become the community online, the town online. And that's what we started. It was a site called Town Online. Every single town had a site. And way in early days, like in 1996, 1997, we gave people the ability to self-publish. It was crazy, right? This is way before its time. Yes. We were having online debates and we were doing things crazily because we knew and understood what the needs were of people in the local communities. Wow. So again, as you mentioned, everyone still talks about the Wayne Gretzky quote. You look to where the customer, where the puck's going, not where the puck was and not where it has been. And so that's where you guys started looking at. And then you talk about this concept of you have to actually like sometimes turn your back on the current customers. So share that a little bit because I think people are like, what are you talking about? These are the people that brought us here. What do you mean turn your back at them? Well, I'll give a great example. In newspapers, the way that most newspapers used to make money is through their classified ads. And so at the community newspaper company, what every other newspaper company would do is you would charge for print and then give online ads on for free. And went, well, from an economic point of view, that's crazy because people don't value the online. What we're going to do is charge for the online and give the print away for free. So that was exactly what we were just talking about. We loved our print customers, but that wasn't where the future was. That was a dying industry. And so we said, look, the future is going to be in the online space where you can put up pictures, where you can have more descriptions. You can be very quick and up to date on what is available or not. And we made money. We were profitable. We were absolutely profitable in that first year just because of our online advertising because we could actually show that people were willing to pay for this and pay for all of our operations. I love it. I love it. I share a little bit of some of the, now the bigger companies, the familiar ones that have done the same thing. You mentioned Facebook. Some now and said, all right, we're not going to do what we used to do. We're going to go after this future customer because I don't think many businesses at all have a map or in their office that says, these are our future customers. They have, this is who's paying us right now. They don't know have who should. Share some of these bigger companies that have done this and it's worked out. Sure, I'll share that. And, and I'll, to your point, first of all, I go into companies, I ask them a couple of questions when I do my consulting. I ask, uh, and, and I do this, I go, give me an hour. Let me walk around your company and let me just talk to people because I want to ask them a few questions. And they're like really nervous. I'm like, I guarantee you, it's not going to be hard, right? So I ask them, I go to a random person, what's your strategy for the company? Tell me who your customer is. And if they know that, tell me who your future customer is. And then show me your dashboard, right? And so those three things tell you so much. Are they aligned with where you're trying to go? If they don't know what the strategy is, what are they doing? They're just doing the job heads down. They're not thinking strategically. If they don't know who their customer is, you got a problem there. But even 
can they identify where you're going with that strategy? Does your strategy have a clear future customer you're trying to serve? Because if your strategy is about the future, if you're talking about your current customer, there's a disconnect. And the dashboard goes, hey, you know, what's on there? Do I know what I'm doing every day? First of all, am I measuring that? And second of all, is it clearly leading me towards our combined definition of success? There's a lot to unpack there. So the dashboard quickly, I know you've talked about this a little bit. I want to get back to the bigger picture of future customers. But the dashboard is so fascinating because most companies, they have sales, the regular daily metrics. What's the dashboard you recommend? Have your customer in there and ideally your future customer. So I'll give you two Facebook examples. First of all, on the dashboard, I had a chance to look at Mark Zuckerberg's dashboard back in March of 2010, thereabouts. First column, all their current web users. Second column, all their mobile users, and they didn't have an app. And they were just looking at this like really awful experience on the mobile web. And you know, there was like Android, there was iPhone, there's Blackberry. Yeah, Blackberry was back big back then. In the bottom right-hand corner was revenues, was financials, and it was blank. The dashboard was visible to every single person at Facebook. They could see what was important to Mark Zuckerberg. And it was clearly mobile was the future. And they didn't really come up with a very full-fledged mobile strategy until 2013, three years later. And there was also a message like, we care about financials, but not right now. We've got to focus on this customer experience. At some point, that box will be filled. We're going to pay a lot of attention to it, but not right now. That's so fascinating. So I'm very intrigued by that because a company that different than Facebook, you have your customer metrics and then you have your future customer metrics. Now we say, we say, all right, here's who we have. Like for instance, our stadium, we have 100,000 people that go to our ballpark, but we're also taking the show on the road. We're also doing 24, 7, 365 games. We're creating this whole other network. Is that part of our future customer that we're keeping track, this whole new way we're going? Or how would you look at that? How I would look at that is look at your first time customer. Okay. Do they come back? Who are the people who didn't come up? Who are the people who were on your list, but have never come to a game. Okay. Look at those adjacent users. Look at your young users. If okay. you have a good idea of who your future customer is, yep. not your current customer, your best ideal customer, but the people who could put, represent potentially a new revenue stream, new growth area. I mean, what if you had satellite locations, yep. right? Yep. To get that energy. It may be, you know, broadcast electronically, but you still have that same enthusiasm in the room with ambassadors there. Is that a growth area? What's the likelihood that that would work, et cetera? So you don't know where the future is. And this is one of the biggest problems. If you don't know who your future customer is and people are not comfortable and sure, they're not 100% certain. Well, guess what they do? They go running back to their profitable current customers. That's safety there. I know they're going to work. I'm not going to, quote, waste my money. Yes. But if you stay only in that safety zone, you never push out of it in that comfort zone, and you go over here and explore, you're never going to grow. I love this. I love this. I actually, this morning, I wrote in my, in my journal, I wrote future fans. And I wrote, I started with who should not be our future fans and who will not be. Because it was easier for me to go that route. And I started thinking about the typical generic season ticket, box seat ticket holder that they've done it for 100 years, and that's not where the future is going. What's this new type of experience? And I started thinking about TikTok. We have more followers than any major league team right now. There's little Savannah, like, you know, over 300,000 followers. And I'm like, okay, it's a younger audience that wants the fun, that wants this. How do we get them to be our future customers, where our future fans, where they want to buy? And like Zuckerberg, probably, he didn't know the exact answer, but he knew that's where we want to go. And it took three years to finally target that. Is that what you see? 
Yes, I do see that. And I look at it this way, the way you define your business, are you a baseball team? Are you a stadium? Are you an entertainment business? If you're an entertainment business, then you look at things completely differently. Yes. I'll just give you a little example. Actually, we're the owner, my husband and I are owner of a winery up in the Sierra Foothills, and we are opening our tasting room this weekend. This is my little side project. Oh, that's awesome. And what I describe to my team is we're not a tasting room. We're not a winery. We are an experience business and we just happen to make and sell wine. And so if you look at and your mindset changes completely differently, our competition are all the other entertainment venues in Sacramento. That's our competition. It's not the other tasting rooms. So this is getting them to come to our region is the hard part. It's like, how do we engage them? How do we bring our experiences to them maybe in Sacramento? Because we're not tied to a geographic location. I love it. So, so give me an example. So wine companies, wine tasting rooms, they've done X for so. Because you are not in the wine business, we're not in the baseball business. What are those things that you're doing to say, we're going to do this that other wine companies aren't doing because we're not in the same business as them? We're set up to create a huge database of every single person who's come in. And even if they don't want to be messaged to, we're going to track that they come in. Yes. They come back again and be able to segment them and to be able to understand how are they developing? What is happening? We know that wine drinking and and purchasing is declining. So we have to go after a new market, which is young people who drink spirits. They don't drink wine. Wine is too complicated. So the way to explain wine isn't, well, it has raspberry accents with a bit of pepper. We're going to have infographics <laughs> to explain what the wine tastes look like. And you know, to bring in this graphic, like, I like this wine that has this sort of taste map, then get me another one that has that kind of taste map. I love so it. So just approaching wine from a completely different perspective than it always has been to just demystify it. Yeah. The simplifying is okay. I'm a craft beer drinker. We have beer festivals at our stadium, even tap in the morning beer festival, because you can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning. We do a lot of crazy things. But wine, I don't understand it. No one knows, like, you don't drink wine. I don't understand it. But if you want to have a big demographic, how do you simplify it and make it easy and have that gateway? Because people love wine, but it's getting that first step in. I think what you're doing is so, so smart. And then Charlotte, challenge say, what makes people leave and say, you wouldn't believe what happened when I went to this place? And that's one question we always ask ourselves. When they leave our ballpark, what would make them say, you wouldn't believe that happened at the stadium? And it sounds like you're on that path, but I just, you talk about, I'm going to keep going. We, we could jam for a while, but begin with the end in mind. That's yes. kind of like where this future customer, that's where this whole mindset, share kind of that insight a little bit and where people can start there. Well, I think, again, if you have a good idea of where you want to be, again, this is the hardest thing that organizations do. It's so hard to pull yourself out of your every single day. And this is why having a clear calendar, I mean, this is the hardest thing. You're a small business owner, you're sitting there, you're tons of urgent things that are important coming into you. But we know that the not urgent, important things are probably the things that are going to make a bigger difference in your, in your business. So to the extent that you can protect that time, create that space so that you can really think and respect and reflect on where you want to be. I mean, Wayne Gretzky was really good at what he did because he practiced it. As a child, he would sit there and watch hockey games and sketch out where the ice puck was actually going. He practiced this, then he would see how right was he in guessing and then go back and analyze what was wrong. But he didn't do this just by sheer talent. He had to work at it. So if you want to start with the end in mind, you have to work at it. You have to practice skating to where the puck is going to be 
And a lot of times you're going to be wrong in the beginning. And that's where you learn. Yeah. And you said that leaders should spend 50% of their time in the future. Yes. The higher up you are in the organization, the more time you have to spend in the future. You know why? Well, I don't see anyone else doing it. I mean, you're at the very top of the organization and you don't think about the future. Do you have a little like, you know, somebody else in the closet someplace who's going to go do this for you? You're it. The buck stops with you. So if you don't think about the future, no one else will. And you're going to put your business at risk. But you said at some point you're spending your time in the future. And then at some point you have to just burn the boats. Yes. That's very scary. Yes. Burning the boats. <laughs> Alexander the Great went to go uh, defeat his enemies and they were completely outnumbered. And when they got ashore, he ordered his soldiers to burn the boats. And they go, what do you mean? That's our only escape route. He goes, we will sail home in our enemy ships or we will die trying. And that's literally what it takes, right? At some point, you're going to be faced with a make it or do it, you know, do it or die decision. Do I go into this new space, pursue the future, or do I retreat to safety? You can always retreat to safety. Safety is always there. But unless you take a close look at that future and intentionally, strategically say, I will not pursue it. I think it's too dangerous. I'm not capable of doing it. Then you retreat to safety. What I do not accept is when people say, I like it here. It's safe. It's comfortable. That future looks scary. I don't even want to look at it. Like, how can you not even look at it? Yeah. Your customers are there. You need to fall in love with your future customers because when you're in love, all you want to do is just be with your future customers. You can't help but be there. You know you're not going to meet all their expectations. You're going to fall down and you'll not be able to be there all the time for them, but you're going to keep trying because you love them. Yeah. Why would you not want to pursue them? You know, it's so, I see it almost like a drug that holds people back. You know, you keep getting paid by your current customers. You keep getting paid over and over again. And Charlie, I don't know if you know this, but it was over a year ago, we announced we're getting rid of all advertisements at our stadium. We became the first ad-free ballpark, which is crazy, which doesn't make sense. That's a burning the boat moment. But, you know, we realize that's that that's not the future of advertising is putting billboards at stadiums. That's not the future. What's best for our future customers. We don't, they don't want to be advertised to. They don't want to be sold. They don't want to market to. And so you have to be able to get over like, hey, I know this money that's been coming to you in the past. You're going to say no for potentially a much bigger pie and more importantly, a bigger impact on future customers. And I guess what I'm thinking about this is it's inspired us. And I was reading that when we made that crazy decision. I was like, we're going to get rid of all of our advertising. So Directly, you cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars, Charlene, right away. All right. (laughs) We'll we'll win in the long run. I think about this burn the boats, what Netflix did. And I'm obviously a big fan of Reed Hastings and what they've done. But hey, this is going to streaming. We're going to burn. He may have burned a little early, but just share how maybe that goes into this whole theme of like, this is where we're going. Yeah. So Netflix, when they offered streaming, they created two pricing plans, one for streaming and one for their red envelopes. And people were up in arms, up in arms about this. And they kind of botched the launch of it, but they apologized for not communicating well, but they didn't go back on what they did. They said, this is our future. This is where we're going to be. And we're going to have that business model for it. And if you know, they just announced that they're going to raise the prices again. And I was like, wow, they, it took them a while, but they said, okay, now it's time. Yeah, we got a gazillion people who joined us over the pandemic. Now we're going to go meet the benefits of that. 
So they said, we're going to do this. And despite all the people complaining when they did this move, they did not back down from it. So they, again, I think it takes a lot of guts and you don't do this lightly. The other example I gave was Adobe. When they went from package software to the cloud, when they announced that they were no longer going to support the package software, that was the last version, 50,000 people wrote a petition and said, we want our package software back. We don't want this new future. And Adobe goes, we burned the boats. There was no way. I mean, employees, customers, investors were coming to them. You got to go back. They go, nope, burn the boats. They just said it over and over and over again. And you're going to lose customers. You're going to lose customers. And I think that's like the thing you have to be okay with to an extent. Like I remember our first year of our first team, they're like, this is too much of a circus. We're we're out. You know, we want the baseball. And even this past year, I had six seats, box seats, which we don't lose seats because we have a big waiting list. They're like, no, you guys are getting too crazy. The baseball, the, the, you know, the traditional baseball is gone. We're out. And I'm like, that's okay. You have to be okay with that. Yeah. And what Adobe did though, is they ran the numbers. They ran the numbers and ran the numbers. They had war rooms filled with charts everywhere. They did the research. And initially, they didn't go and pull, you know, say, we're going to go all the way in cloud. When they could see the numbers, they felt comfortable that this was a bigger market. They would replace anybody that they lost. That's when they said, okay, we're ready to go. So it wasn't this foolhardy, yeah, I'm going to close my eyes, hope that it's going to work. It was really well done, well researched, and they could back it up. And every single person on the executive team went, absolutely, this is the right thing to do. They literally held their hands together, kumbaya moment, looked around the circle and said, are we doing this? Are we committed to this? A hundred percent. And when I spoke with people during that time, they go, man, our executive team, they are not cracking. They are just like steadfast, a hundred percent. My experience from this was talking to the CFO at Adobe. He could talk as well and as eloquently about the customer experience as the chief marketing officer, as the person in charge of experience, the person in charge of the product. I mean, the CFO had completely internalized who their future customer is and what they were trying to build for them. It's so smart because if everything starts with putting yourself in the customer's shoes, your future customer's shoes on a better experience, that's where a lot of disruption can come from. I mean, This phone here I'm holding, five years ago, I went to T-Mobile and people were like, you're going to T-Mobile? You can't even talk on the phone in half the places you go. I'm like, no, I love what they're doing because they're going so against the way things were. I'm going to do it. And the first couple of months were a little rough. We kept saying T-Mobile probs, T-Mobile probs, but they figured it out. And I'll tell you what I read about T-Mobile in, how do you pronounce the CEO's last name? John? John Ledger. Um, John Ledger. (laughs) It's it's tough. I, I struggle with it too. Yet everyone knows him. Can you go into, because I think when you talk just about everyone knows about the customer experience, this is probably the best way to disrupt. And T-Mobile did it better than maybe anybody. Share a little bit of that story. Yeah. So T-Mobile came in fourth largest, very, very behind all the other players in the U.S. mobile market. So John Ledger, it's his name, came in and brand new strategy to do everything that the big carriers weren't doing. So when they were looking at the strategy and, and actually started the strategy right before he joined, they were looking at it like, oh, maybe, maybe we could do this. They wanted, should we be the urban brand? Should we be the youth brand? How do we position ourselves? And they did all this research and they found that people were just really angry at their carriers. They were just angry and mad and and felt like they were being held over the barrel with these two-year contracts and 
They couldn't get a new phone when the new phone came out because they were in a two-year contract. They said, what if we were to break, you know, tear up the contracts and just let people come and go and uh, be customer oriented and say, we love our customers. We're going to do the right thing for them and give them free Netflix and do all these other crazy things. Give them unlimited data. I mean, that's crazy, right? But they said, yeah, we're for the customer. We're going to be the uncarrier. So when you are the uncarrier, it kind of opens up the possibilities. You get a CEO who's a traditional died in the wall, straight shooter CEO. He gets him and he goes, I like that. That's pretty cool. And then he goes, <laughs> he figured out he had nothing to say at the upcoming CES conference. And he goes there and kind of blows the doors off by just dissing his competition, especially AT&T. He goes, I need a T-Mobile shirt. So he goes out and gets a custom printed T-Mobile shirt in bright pink that he wears under his suit jacket, puts on a T-Mobile baseball cap, looks like no other CEO you've ever seen. And he's talking trash about his competition. And everyone's going, what the? And so of course, everybody carried it. Everybody talked about it. But his audience was his employees. When his employees saw that, they go, Wow. We're really different. This is not the usual game. And what John Ledger actually did, there was a huge amount of external work, but also a huge amount of internal work to change the culture at T-Mobile. The reason I know this is my company actually did a lot of the strategy work for T-Mobile during this time. And so I had all the background story that it was like these steps that they did externally, but all these steps internally to bring along a new change that employees had the power. They had the agency to be able to create the uncarrier experience for every single person they came across. I love it. I mean, he wanted to make the brand cool, but he wanted to make it liked internally first. And Bob Iger in his book, Ride of a Lifetime, he talks about how you know, the biggest challenge with Disney when they were going through struggles was people weren't as proud because they didn't have great products to be proud of in the 90s when they were struggling with their films. We want to have great products to feel proud of. And so he's like, how do I make you guys love what we're doing? I got to make a better product, a better experience and make it cool to wear our pink shirts that we're wearing around town. That was that part of his model was like, we got to, we got to really just say, will our people be our biggest fans? Yeah. And again, he was the biggest fan of the employees. I mean, they have huge call centers, right? He's like, how do I visit a call center? He got a Segway. He rode it up and down every single corridor, high-fiving every single person that he could. They got tons of confetti cannons and like did huge parties and celebrations and recognitions for employees. It was crazy. This is not the way you normally run a business, but they go, of course, we're the own carrier. We have permission to do anything we want. It's no wonder, Jesse, you would love them because it's like, it's a completely contrarian way to do things. What cracked me up was when John Ledger, how he personally changed. He went from this like buttoned up guy. You look at a before and after picture. He looks like completely buttoned up. He's like testifying Congress and everything. Now he just retired from there and he would, his entire wardrobe was pink, magenta, and black. He grew his hair long, slicked it back. And my favorite part is he had this crazy show on Facebook on Sunday mornings called Slow Cooker Sundays, where he would kind of cook something and then he would read promotions from T-Mobile and then do some crazy antic. And he was like, this is not normal. He had, I think, a couple million people watching him every Sunday, more so than most cable channels did. I mean, talk about promotion and visibility for T-Mobile. And they're now the number three, easily, quickly catching up on two Verizon. So knocking on Verizon's door to be number two. This is a huge turnaround for the company. 
I worry a little bit that they're moving away from that because as they have grown bigger and more corporate, that sense of energy, that rate of innovation has definitely slowed. Yeah. Well, there's a value to being the underdog. I mean, they were the underdog and they were breaking all the rules and they were challenging it. And I love it. I mean, in the results, I mean, you share in your book from 20 billion to 40 billion, they just kept climbing and climbing in revenue. I guess one big personal question, curiosity, his ability to attack the way things were. I think about that and what we do. And I wonder what that positioning is. Obviously, we've seen presidents do it. We've seen other people attack to it. I struggle with that. But I also realize the value of giving people a better experience is sometimes you have to make them even more aware of the challenges. And so I think like if you're in my shoes and we're a challenger brand, kind of like T-Mobile on the way baseball is, it's too long, it's too slow, it's too boring. You know, they're not changing at all. It needs to be more fun, more exciting. If you were CEO, would you take a similar approach as him? What would you do to make sure the word gets out even more? Again, I believe that messaging value propositions and everything have to do with the values of the organization. And T-Mobile was in a position where it was a straight out dogfight. And so attacking your competitors for not, they weren't attacking them for being bad companies who are attacking them for not grading, doing well by their customers. Yes. Like shame on you for not treating your customers better. Yes. That's a different type of attack than I think you're ugly. The focus here has to always be on your customers, yes. that you're fighting for them. And whether you're going to be aggressive and pointing out your competition, how they're not doing things well versus, again, loving your customers. Yes. There's nothing like loving your customers. There's no substitute for that. That should be the focus. So like for us, shame on you for nickeling diming people when they come to ballparks and making $8 for this, $7 for this and making the experience where all of our tickets are all inclusive, includes all your food, all your drinks, everything. Shame on you because it's not the best fan experience. Families should not leave a ballpark where they're broke. They should not leave a ballpark where they're bored. They should not leave a ballpark like this. That's maybe a better stance to take to kind of- Yeah, I wouldn't even focus on the shame on you. It's just like, you do you, right? You, You go and be you, do what you have to do. This is what we believe. This is the experience we want to have because we don't believe in nickel and diming people. I love it. I mean, I just want to know that I'm going to have a great time. I may actually be willing to pay a premium on it. Or, you know, I'm willing to, as an organization, um, do uh, take a lower margin on that, knowing that I don't have to spend as much on marketing and we win in the end because other people are going to talk about the great experience that we're going to have. So it goes back to, you know, what kind of experience you want to have and what is it that your audience wants? I can see in other markets that your approach wouldn't work because they just want the baseball and they want to be intensely sitting there with the scorecard, noting every single thing, ignoring, you know, that's what they're going to be doing. We all have friends who do that, right? They do not come to your games. <laughs> so they are not our fan. No, they are not. Yeah, not your target audience. But, but they did have, which I got from you, the Uncarrier Manifesto, which, I mean, do you believe every company should have a manifesto on what they believe in? I think that every company should have a manifesto. I think every person should have a manifesto. Ah. I've been doing these manifesto workshops and the, the beauty of a manifesto, it's your statement of how you think the world should work and how you will play in it. So and the manifesto says, This is what I think is wrong with the world and how I'm going to fix it, how we are going to fix it. Because I see the potential. This is where the world could look like. This is where we are today. And this is what we are going to do to close that gap. It is a public statement of why I exist. I love purpose statements, but they're just a statement. It's just this one tiny little thing. So my purpose statement is to help leaders thrive with disruption. That sounds great. It's something I could say at a cocktail party and introduce myself. But what does that mean? What's going to guide me every single day? What is my purpose? How am I going to serve the world? Somebody came to me in January 
and this wonderful other leadership coach, I was at a, a meeting of leadership coaches, talk about feel good, right? And this one woman, Julie Carrier, came up to me and said, you know, instead of asking like, so where are you from? How are you doing today? She goes, so how do you serve the world? And I went, that is such a wise and deep question. Wow. And I have to be honest, when the pandemic hit, I was just thrown on my back and for about two weeks was just in grief, thinking about what we had ahead of us. And the thing that pulled me out was her asking me that over and over again. And so I kept going back to my purpose, you know, go back to my manifesto. And that got me back out into the chair, starting to do live streaming, starting to say like, I don't know where this is going to end up, but I know what my purpose is. I need to get up every single day and help leaders thrive through this crazy disruption. That is my purpose. I love that. So you have a full one-page manifesto? I do. <laughs> so. I, I'm not asking you to read it. I'm just saying, but it starts, you said the best way to start with a rant. What are the challenges? What are the problems? And then how do you provide hope and fix that? Is that kind of the, the method? Yeah. So my rant is there are so many problems in this world that there are just like so many overwhelming problems. Just pick one. Pandemic, climate change, hunger in our streets. I live in San Francisco and there's so much hunger just down the street from me, right? And economic opportunity, equality. It goes on and on and on. There are so many problems. We're not going to get there by incrementally solving these problems within our comfort zone. The only way we're going to get there is if we have as many disruptive leaders out there as possible who are confident and competent in their abilities to create disruption. They can go out there. So my rant is we need more disruptors. And so my purpose every day is to create more disruptors, get people out of their comfort zone, to go figure out where that edge is and live at that very edge because that's where the magic happens. Jeez, well, Sean, that would be like a perfect way to end the show, but I'm not going to let you out here. That's so inspiring. And I think that's so important. And uh, I don't know if you have some others, maybe from companies that you'd be willing to maybe share. We can put in some show notes, but I think the examples, a lot of people, they need to have an example. And I know T-Mobile has one, the Uncarrier. I think you've shared a few others, but maybe after uh, offline, we could share a few. That'd be great for the listeners. Like I said, I worked on one for months. It's challenging to kind of work on it when you don't have many that are to emulate with. I like the one from Nextdoor, the community one. So Nextdoor has one. You know, we're neighbors. And what does it mean to be a neighbor in the physical space and in the digital space? I do like Gretchen. What's her last name? I don't remember the names, but it's in the book. And, and she has a whole thing about how to write personal things. So personal manifestos. But I think in many ways that there's no right way to write a manifesto. And, and Jesse, I know you've been working on yours for weeks and months. Just put it out there. Yeah. I mean, that's what I did. I literally wrote a draft, shared it with a friend. We gave ourselves accountability partners and he had to write one for himself and his business too. We shared. I was like, "Ass off my ass, off I'm like, "Oh, actually, it's pretty good. It's fine." So just put it out before you're ready. Yeah, put it out there before you're ready. You can always refine it. And then the other thing, though, I would say is the one thing about the manifesto is that you actually use it. You use it to inspire the people around you, to inspire yourself, and that is its power. The power of the manifesto is partly that you write it, and then the second part is that you use it. And this is the thing about Purpose statements and manifestos, they have to be authentic. Only you could write this. They have to be inspirational because they go up into the future. But they also have to be shareable. They have to be shared to have that power. And they also have to be actionable. There needs to be things in there that say, so what are we going to do about this? What am I going to do about this? Yeah. And then you live that and you do those things every single day. I love it. I love it. So good. 
So that's part of disrupting your culture and also disrupting, creating a movement. You talk a lot about a movement. That's so, we put on our website back in 2015 when we first launched, join the movement. We didn't actually know what that meant. We just said, join the movement. And every day people keep joining the movement and we're still working on that. But it's so powerful. Talk to me about you know, how you can disrupt culture and join a movement together because that's, that's powerful. Yeah, again, movements are important because what you're trying to do when you create a disruption is really hard. I keep thinking that innovation sounds really good, but innovation is just whitewashing, disruption, saying, and giving a false promise that it's going to be easy. Disruption is really hard. And when people get discouraged, when they come against those barriers, those really hard things to do, they're going to have to have some motivation. Again, that vision of the future, the future customer, but more importantly, the sense of belonging to a movement. Being part of a tribe is so important because then people step up themselves and become leaders and say, hey, you over there, you need to join this movement too. And you and you and you come and join the movement. So it's not only on you. A part of leadership that's hard to develop where it's no longer about your personal leadership, but you bring other leaders up to take on the mantle of leadership and to share that with you. That's what creating a movement is. So if, you, so if someone's listening right now, it's like, all right, I want to start a movement for my restaurant. What do they do? Well, first of all, make sure that everyone knows what kind of restaurant you want to have, who you're trying to build towards. What just, again, those three questions. Do you put your strategy? Who's your future customer? And what does your dashboard look like? If everybody in your organization understands those things, you are on your way to creating that movement. Now you get your customers to be a part of that. Do they understand your strategy? Do they love the fact that it's clear about they are your future customers? And then you measure and you say, am I bringing those people in? Am I being successful at actually encouraging those people to spread the word? Are they part of my movement? You know, one of my favorite examples of a movement brand is Harley Davidson. Yes. They look at their customers as the people who buy those really expensive, beautiful bikes, right? But they also think of their customer, their fans, as the person where the only thing they've ever bought is a Harley Davidson keychain, right? Those are their customers too. And when you start thinking about that as a small business, as a restaurant, it could just be the people who may have walked by your store. Yes. But they are part of that ecosystem. How do you make them part of your movement? They may never even come in because they may be vegetarian. You're a steakhouse, but they tell their steak-eating friends, that's a really nice steakhouse on the street. And they, people there seem really, really happy. You should try it out. I love it. The habit and how you make people feel. I think about powerful brand like Yeti. You know, I mean, people have more people have Yeti hats than they do maybe even cool. I mean, it's because they represent the brand because of what the brand says about them and how it makes them feel. And so that's thinking about everything, their whole touch point, their brand says. So the movement is more about the feelings that they have when they get in your ecosystem. Am I hearing that correctly? That's correct. Yes. Okay. I love that. I love that. All right. The other thing you talk about is growth quickly. So growth leads this. I, I love it. So disruption doesn't create growth. Growth creates disruption. And I see this a little personally as we set a vision to this is where we're going. And we said, we're going to go from here to playing year round, which no one else is doing, to playing on the road, taking the show on the road, to doing all this. All of a sudden, this plan for growth created, how are we going to do it? Is that what you're saying? Have a growth plan a little bit with your movement, and then that will create how you're going to disrupt? Well, I look at it this way. If you're not trying to grow, and, and I say grow in not just revenues, but grow in your impact, grow in a personal way, grow if you're in a church, your ministry, whatever it is, right? Whatever it is that you're growing. We're talking about big G growth. And, you know, it's really hard to grow. It's, it's just really hard. I mean, Justin, you make it look easy, but it was a huge amount of work. Yes. I mean, what you all did in a very short amount of time is incredible, but there was a huge amount of work behind that. 
And what happens is when people begin on this path, okay, I got a vision, I got an idea, I'm going to keep growing. Oh, wait, it's really hard, right? And I thought that disruption was just going to lead to growth. It's just, if I just do this, it's going to be it. But no, actual act of growing is disruptive. And it feels disruptive because it changes the way we interact with each other. It forces us into new relationships. It forces us out of that comfort zone. And all we want to do in our natural inclinations is to run back to that comfort zone. This is the thing that the pandemic has really taught me in that we were thrown out of our comfort zone back in March. I mean, we were just catapulted out of it. And we're sitting there, we're kind of mucking around for about five or 10 days trying to get our lives back together again. Like, what the heck is happening to us? Like, no, we don't want to do this. So we were forced to go into this new world. I mean, we would never could have imagined us working and connecting and having relationships in this way. You know, I had three hour Zoom calls with my family over <laughs> dinner and we're just hanging out and we spend more time together now that we're apart oh. because of the technology. It's kind yeah. of crazy. But we've been to the edge. We know what it's like to be out of our comfort zone. And you know, we're okay. Yeah. And that should give us confidence that we can accomplish in such a short amount of time that we thought would have taken years or never have gotten there. We have this confidence now that we can leave our comfort zone and not go 5 or 10% out, but go right to the very edge. So my advice to everybody out there is to go to the edge, go right out to the very edge, take a look and see what it's like. Because you don't know where your edge is until you go to it. Right. And so go to that very edge, take a look over that crazy edge. And okay, yeah, like he's like, okay, that's too much, right? And then just take one step back. I mean, you take that one step back, you know you're on solid ground. You're not going to fall off the edge, but stay there. Don't go back into your comfort zone, stay at that very edge. And over time, you're going to be able to grow that edge. And for your team, yeah. for your team, it's so important to define what that edge is for the organization. Because if they don't know where the edge is, they will stay in the center and they won't take the risk. Because the things they say is, well, I need permission to go try something new. Well, I don't want to fail because failure is not going to be tolerated. If you tell them, look, this is the edge. This is the playing field. This is the sandbox that we can be in. Go right to the very edge. Anything that happens in there, it's fine. Don't worry about it. We lose a little money. We can afford it. You make a mistake. It's okay. Go and try. Spread our wings. Try a new game. Go out there. Just don't go past that edge, okay? Be very, very clear where that edge is. And when you're very clear about the edge, my goodness, they suddenly feel like, oh, I can do that. So they take one step out of that little center and you're just sitting there going, yay, congratulations, this is awesome. You took that little bit of risk and then they'll go a little bit further and a little bit further. This doesn't happen overnight. Disruption is something you learn and you get better at it the more you practice it. And so the worst thing that could possibly happen is that it'll just add to the failure resume. Yeah. It's one of the things I love is having a failure resume, like all the ways that I've screwed up and messed up. First of all, it keeps me really humble. And the second thing is, the most important thing about the resume is to put right next to it, what did you learn? Yeah. So on a resume, it's like, this is the position I had, and these are all the things I did. And a failure resume, is like, these are all the ways that I messed up. And you put that right behind it, what did I learn? I think about if success is this goal, and when you actually end up, is usually short of that goal. We don't call that failure. We call that just not quite there yet. And so that gap gives us so much data and information about how we can close that. But unless we have that gap, unless we actually try, we're never gonna get to success. And what happens to so many business owners is 
well, I don't want to do this until I know I can have 100% success. The difference between people who never get started because they have this fear of failure and the people who move forward into it is, are we comfortable with this gap? Are we comfortable sitting there knowing we didn't get there? And are we confident that we can start closing the gap even though we haven't hit it? And that's how you begin. I look at this, people ask me all the time, how do I begin? I go, pick something that seems really hard and out of reach. What is the first thing? What is the only piece of data you need to have, the minimally viable data that you need to have to be able to make your first decision to get to that path? Don't try to solve everything. But what's the one simple piece of data you need to get to feel comfortable taking that first step? I love it. I love and then it. take another first step and you get closer and closer to that goal versus trying to solve all of it before you begin the journey. I love it. It's almost just looking at failure as discovery. You know, we say, well, what can you discover today? What can you learn from this minimum viable thing they put out from going to the edge? What can you learn? And we're so scared. I mean, Jeff Bezos said, our success is a direct function of the amount of experiments we do per year, per month, per week, per day. And yeah. maybe, maybe we're not doing enough experiments to disrupt. All right, Charlie, I, we're getting to the end here. I could go for, uh, I'm going to go a quick little ninth inning here. All right, I'm going to throw it back on you. I've been grilling you. You get to grill me. You are the host of Business Done Differently. You can ask me one question. What is the one thing you wish you had done differently? When I started out? Mm-hmm. When I answer that question right now, I think play bigger. I was in a very small playground in a little tiny team in Gastonia, North Carolina. We were testing little things out like flatulence fun nights and salute to underwear nights. I would have played bigger, taken bigger risks and not be too afraid in the beginning. I think that was a very challenge for me. Now it's like, all right, you know, let's jump. Let's spread our wings, as you said. Let's get out there. Let's get to the edge. And I think that's what I would have done at the beginning. Because now is every time big chance that we've taken, we've learned so much that's pushed us to the next level. So very good question. So my question, reflecting back on that second question, if, you, if I could be indulged, how can you play bigger, even bigger today? You don't have to answer that. Yeah, I'm not going to. I'm going to think about that. I, I immediately think about bigger risks, but that's my that's my first thought process on that. So you've mentioned a bunch of questions, question time. If you want better answers in business, you got to ask better questions. You've mentioned a few throughout this episode. Are there some questions that you always go back to with some of these groups that you work with? Yes. I always ask, what are the beliefs that hold you back? Mm. Right? If the beliefs of disruptive organizations are things like openness and agency and a bias for action, Mm. then what are the beliefs that you are saying to yourselves as individuals, but also as an organization that are holding you back? I mean, really do some analysis around this. Sit down as a team, take uh, some post-it notes out and write on them and then throw them in the middle. Like we don't have permission to fail or I have to get permission before I act or I don't know what to do or we don't have enough money. What is the belief that we have and put them in the middle and then really discuss it as a team They go, well, are these true? And if they're no longer true, then agree. We're not going to believe these things anymore. We're not going to act as if we believe these things anymore. And we're going to instead have new beliefs that replace them. I love it. And that's how they can start disrupting now. They got to throw it all out there and then start rocking and rolling. Final two, Charlotte. All right. This is a great, you've probably never been asked this question. So I'm going to ask it. What does going bananas mean to you? Going bananas feel is you let go of any hesitations that you may have. Anything that's holding you back from truly enjoying and feeling joy. Oh, I love that. Thank you. This, that could fit into this disruption. I love that. And then final one here, what makes someone unforgettable? What makes people feel unforgettable? What makes, uh, unforgettable? what makes somebody unforgettable is that they make you feel great. They make you feel, they evoke a feeling in you. Because we don't remember what people say. Okay. And maybe in the case of you, Jesse, we don't remember what they're wearing. Okay. <laughs> 
But what we do remember is we don't remember what they say, what they do. We remember how they made us feel. So that feeling, when we think about the best leaders, the best moments, we remember them because of the feeling in us that they left with us. So that's what makes somebody unforgettable. So always go for that emotion. I mean, business is one of those things where we shy away from emotion. Words like intimacy scare us relationship and trust, they scare us because we feel like there's no place for that in business. If it's just the opposite. They are the root of what business is, of what organizations and leadership is. It all comes back down to relationships and relationships are about these feelings that we have for each other. And the best brands make you feel something. And they have to often disrupt themselves to make you feel something more than just a typical brand. And I think that's one of the roots of this whole book was talking about what are they doing to make you feel something, to go into stretch themselves, to feel something special. And Charlene, as I said before, this book is a Bible for us. We are going back to it over and over and over again. And you shared so much today. Is there anything else you want to share where people can find more? I mean, you have to buy the book. If I haven't told everyone, buy the book, buy the book. And I've never gone that much of a sales process. I've had lots of authors, but I'm telling you, this is a game changer. So Charlene, thank you first. Is there anywhere else people can send or anything else you'd like to leave the listeners with? Sure. Yeah. I'm on my site, charlenelee.com. And I'm usually at that handle on social media. I do say, you know, contact me, reach out. I would love to hear what you are doing, where you are in your journey. This is how I do my research. Literally half the examples in the book came from my community. It wasn't me like knowing people. It was me having a network of people like you. So it's to know what the experiences are, your stories. They inspire me. They keep me going. So please stay in touch. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. I think everyone, once you hear this episode in a year from now, look back and say, how much have you disrupted yourself, disrupted your business, disrupted your industry and challenge yourself and hold yourself accountable? Because I'm holding myself accountable in a year from now, Charlene, we're going to talk again and we've better done some crazy things. So thank you for the inspiration. You're so welcome, Jesse. It's great talking to you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe that challenging the status quo, creating fans first, and changing the game is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered in this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.